1: Welcome to Fourth Estate and this special podcast extra with economist and columnist for the Australian, Henry Ergas. This podcast is coming to you from the two SCR studios in Sydney on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation and can be heard on the community radio broadcast network across the country and downloaded to your favorite device for listening. My name is Peter Frey and yes, with me today is Henry Ergas, who has dared to tread where most angels might fear to go. He's turned his gimlet eye and unsentimental mind to the impact of news aggregators on public interest journalism in Australia. The report commissioned by Google is nicely timed to coincide with the deliberations of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission inquiry into the same thing, into the impact of the platforms on journalism in this country. The co-authors of Henry's report are Jonathan Pincus and Sabine Schnittke, both of whom work with the, uh, the economic consultants Green Square, which Henry founded 20 or so years ago. Henry, welcome. Thank you. First things first, when Google asked you to do the report, what was your first reaction?
0: Oh, good question. I, I wish I could remember. <laughs> um, I mean, I suspect my first reaction was, what an interesting question. Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it certainly was a very interesting question, a question of our times. Have you been following it up to this sort of the debate? Y- y- yes.
0: I mean, I wouldn't say I followed it as closely as I probably mm-hmm. should have done, but um, as someone who's been involved with the media for many years and interested mm-hmm. in its economics, mm-hmm. um, I did have a, a watching Mm, a watching brief watching interest in what was happening
1: okay you you've come up with some very controversial and counterintuitive statements in your report and some very interesting conclusions among them is this idea that there isn't a clear link between the number of journalists employed and the supply of public interest journalism in fact you call it simplistic and misleading to suggest there is such a link and of course that flies against deceptive wisdom some academic studies, and and widely held concerns. So can you expand a little bit on that conclusion for us? Sure.
0: Uh, I mean, it's useful at the outset to Mm. define what we mean by public interest journalism. And for us, public interest journalism is a subset or component of the journalistic enterprise Mm -hmm. as a whole. By public interest journalism, what we mean is really journalism that focuses on the abuse of power, Mm -hmm. be it in the public or in the private sector. Most often it's in the public sector, but at times it's also in the private sector. One way to think about public interest journalism is as what is often referred to as investigative journalism, Mm -hmm. but investigative journalism that is focusing on those situations where, for one reason or another, an actor has the ability to use power and uses it in ways that are contrary to the public interest. Mm -hmm. What that means is that public interest journalism is uh, a very important component of what journalists do. It's a very important component of what the media does, but it's by no means the totality Mm -hmm. of what what they do. So when you look at aggregate numbers of people who are employed or describe themselves as being employed as journalists, uh, clearly you're looking at a far broader field than that of public interest journalism. And the point we make is twofold. It's first that it's dangerous to infer from trends in the number of journalists Hmm. the level of investment. In public interest journalism, because it may be that um, that other forms of journalism uh, are uh, primarily at issue, mm-hmm. uh, and so that that's really what you're picking up in trends in numbers. Uh, the other point we make is that uh, the total number of journalists in Australia has, in fact, been increasing rather than falling. Uh, if you just look at what there is by way of data. Uh, And there again, it would be dangerous to assume solely on that basis that public interest journalism had, had increased. So what you need to do is ask yourself, what structural shifts are occurring in the media and what the media does? And then
1: within those structural shifts, what is happening to public interest journalism? And so therefore, it's simplistic, as you suggest, to link the two... Because there is no causation or correlation.
0: There isn't a direct link that goes from one to the other. And, in fact, part of the argument we put or part of the analysis that we set out says that the structural changes that are underway have probably increased interest in investigative journalism and are leading uh, at least some sections of the media to focus more heavily on investigative journalism.
1: Mm. and certainly sections of the government sector in the broad in this country we've had a senate inquiry into public interest journalism although i should add that they use a the much wider definition than you i mean some of this comes down to definitional questions of course i mean if, yes. we, if we just look at investigative journalism do you have a handle on or can, is it possible even to get a handle on the level using your definition the, the level of public, journal, public interest journalism over, say, 5, 10, or 15 years ago? I mean, is it possible to get a trend line?
0: Look, it may be possible if you use techniques that we didn't actually have the time to use, but um, you could do content analysis of the media and through content analysis try to identify something like... Mm. Um, you know, column inches or words or some other output measure that was associated with public interest journalism. And there's been some work done on that in the United States, um, al- really along those lines with with pretty mixed results. Mm. Um, so in theory, it is possible. We don't really do that to any great extent. What we try to do is to understand what forces are shaping the role public interest journalism has in
1: today's media. Mm. Well, will just stick on this one for one one more question, which is this. The industry, as I mentioned, has got itself convinced that we are in a crisis about public interest journalism. Again, let's put aside the definitional questions. The media union, for instance, will tell you that 2,500 journalists have lost their jobs in the last uh, five, six years. Um, and there is a s- abiding sense of uh, pessimism in the industry that uh, the jobs are going, and where the you know where the new jobs are being created is no way offsetting the old jobs that are being losing are being lost. It, in your analysis, that's not there, That's not right.
0: I think an important point to bear in mind is, of course, that one of the many ways in which the information revolution, digitalisation. Information technology, however, you want to term that broad complex of changes that have occurred over the last twenty plus years. Um, one one of the ways in which they've affected uh, the media is by increasing productivity. Mm-hmm. And um, to do a lot of things nowadays, you don't need as many people as you used to do. Uh, And so you would expect that, in that situation, uh, that you would see productivity improvement and Mm -hmm. maybe the number of people involved would decline and their functions would change. Uh, And it's obvious that when you look at the way in which people create news, transform it into stories, and then publish and Mm -hmm. distribute news, that in each of those steps, there's been very significant improvements in productivity. So if what you're really interested in, and from the point of view of the community as a whole, what we're really interested in is what is happening to the output of public interest journalism, Hmm. rather than the inputs Mm -hmm. into public interest journalism. Mm -hmm. If what you're interested in is the outputs of public interest journalism, then seen in that perspective uh, trends in the number of people employed at one media outlet or another aren't really all that relevant. What's relevant is what's happening to the output.
1: And in terms of outputs, again, there is more or not less, anyway, public interest journalism now than, say, five years ago, in your opinion, for your analysis. I believe there, there is, though,
0: as I said, we, we didn't set out to to measure the output of public interest journalism and i think there's some conceptual and practical issues involved in doing that um certainly what there is is uh there's quite a lot of it in uh all the major uh formats the traditional formats and as well as that there's been an explosion of new formats mm-hmm. um for instance podcasts mm-hmm. um uh, blog sites, sure. uh, online, solely online mm.
1: um, I'm papers. sure this is public interest journalism as we speak. Uh, uh, yes.
0: Well, you are, <laughs> yep. I'm sure, in the public interest. I hope so. Um, at least not not against the public interest. Uh, and, and so when you look across that complex, what we're experiencing is in many ways an explosion in the availability of different types of information. Mm-hmm. And within those many different types of information are many different forms of public interest journalism. They may not all look like the public interest journalism that we've been used to Mm. historically, but they do investigate what's happening. They analyze it. They report on it. They're very critical of it or Mm -hmm. commendative of of it, depending on their perspective. Um, There's no shortage of information... Investigation and analysis out there.
1: Okay, let's move on to Google. Uh, you spend a lot of time in the report talking about Google News, and you say that while some consumers might use it to get their news instead of, say, a website or a, dare I say, it, a newspaper, um, you conclu- conclude that overall Google News is a positive for publishers because it increases referral traffic back to those sites I mentioned. So, um, how did you come to that? And if that's so, again, a bit like the debate about public interest journalism, is the media industry, as in the broad, and you know, being in the broad, getting it wrong about Google and and such like? Should we just should they just shut up and start loving Google,
0: uh, or yes, um, <laughs> stop worrying and be happy? Mm. First of all, Google News, in the strict sense, is very small relative to the number of news outlets and the number of people who access news websites in one form or another. It's tiny. It's a few In Australia, it's a small number of percentage points. Mm-hmm. But secondly, even when you look at those relatively small number of percentage points, the vast bulk of what's happening there is really that people are using it to then click through to the conventional, traditional, historical publishers. So they're going there because they're interested in the subject. They want to find what items are available on it, and then they click through Mm -hmm. to it.
1: So in that Uh, way, it's a positive for publishers.
0: So in that way, it's a positive for publishers because it's a distribution channel for them. It has obviously the issue that I think has been perhaps more complex and contentious for publishers is not really the click-through, because I think the click-through is now pretty strongly established by a broad number of empirical studies, including ours. I don't think ours is all that different from the results
1: for Mm. Europe or the United States or Canada. You write a column for The Australian, where um, one of my previous jobs was deputy editor of that fine organ. Um, So the Australian's parent news corporation... In its submission to the ACCC, argues very forcefully, over 144 pages, I'm sure you've read it, that digital platforms are reducing choice and diversity of original and quality news and subverting the access for publishers to online revenue streams, which in turn, they say, is undermining the sustainability of news and journalism. And of course, they're not alone in saying that. So you're essentially saying they're wrong. The point we make in the report is that there are some
0: respects in which the development of platforms is affecting, has affected, and will continue to affect the revenue streams that are available to Mm. publishers. It's less through this click-through or news referral function. It's really in two ways that that's happened. The first is that there's much more competition now for eyeballs Mm -hmm. of all forms. We're in, in a world where people are drowning in...
1: In information and content. Information yeah. and
0: content. And And, journalism, and, and, and their perhaps. attention scarce. they attention deprived. And so competition for attention mm-hmm. is, is really much more intense than it mm-hmm. used to be. And that affects them just like it affects the broadcasters. It affects everyone. And the second and perhaps much more direct
1: mm-hmm.
0: impact is that there's been an enormous increase in competition for advertising. And it's the competition for advertising that I think really affects the traditional publishers and has placed the greatest adjustment pressures on them. So in that sense, there are real adjustment
1: pressures there. Most people in the news media industry will say, in effect, that Google and Facebook and others have stolen the revenues. And they've done so by using the content produced by journalists to do so. So they've they've essentially co-opted journalism as a distribution channel. Journalists have gone along with that. Journalism has gone along with that, and in the meantime, they ripped out all the money, and that 90% of every new digital dollar, as we or 85, whatever it is, goes to either Google and Facebook. So therefore, not only have Google and Facebook ruined journalism, but they also should be giving some of that money back. What do you think about those points, but especially the second point, that they should be giving more money back?
0: My own view of it is that what's, actually happened is that new platforms for advertising have developed and so you're in the situation that you were in in many respects for newspapers when radio emerged and then when television emerged that in each of those cases you got more competition Mm. for advertising the The vast bulk of the content on Google has nothing to do with newspapers Mm. people don't go to Google as a substitute for newspapers, Mm -hmm. people go to Google um, for a broad range of other functions. uh, And when you look at just the share of hits that involve news, it's really quite small. Um, And so if Google has developed as a very powerful advertising platform, uh, yes, news and other... Information of that kind is a component of that, but it's a very, very small component. And uh, to argue uh, that uh, as a result of that, there should be a tax on Google that would fund newspapers seems to me to be really inferring a, a connection that is very tenuous in reality and could have. Many distorting impacts and in practice. What, what,
1: what do you say about Facebook in that respect? Because this is a different business model. Both Facebook and Google, but let's talk about Facebook. I guess Facebook uses, again, back to this, you know, boiled down analysis, uses journalistic content to put into news feeds to understand the users of Facebook better, to sell them better advertising, to sell the advertisers better quality, more intelligence about the eyeballs they're getting. Yes, so, uh, so this kind of what used to be a virtuous circle that favored the news media industry now favors Facebook, and therefore they should pay more for that.
0: Well, again, it's, it's, it's really that second step, and a part of the question is how significant is news mm. in this total package? Mm-hmm. What really happens with Facebook is that Facebook offers a platform people use it for a very broad range of purposes of which sharing news is really a very small component of the total on any at least of the estimates that I've seen. Uh, and then they have some quite sophisticated ways of monetizing those uses of their platform in terms of selling space to advertisers. Uh, what's happening at the moment is that, um, uh, Platforms such as Google or Facebook or Twitter are not alone in doing that. Increasingly what you're finding is that virtually every business that has some kind of online presence is now mining that data to raise advertising revenues, to make use of the information it provides, whether what you're talking about are airlines with frequent flyer programs
1: Um, The uh, Trump campaign. I'm sorry? The Trump campaign. Trump campaign. campaign.
0: Well, I imagine the Clinton campaign as well. I dare say
1: so. And
0: I think one of the most interesting aspects of the AT&T-Comcast merger and of AT&T's strategy at the moment is that AT&T is telling financial analysts pretty explicitly that it thinks that one of its greatest competitive, competitive assets is the fact that as a very large mobile carrier. It has a huge amount of information about people. And it's now going to be using that information to do exactly the sort of thing that the other platforms Mm. have been doing. Uh, And I think you'll see that as more and more of the transactions that we're involved in go online. And so that information in a way becomes available. And that in turn allows the uh, holders of that information, given also the much better techniques we have for mining that information, for extracting statistical patterns, uh, for using that to, to to target advertising or other services, um, we're, we're going to be seeing an enormous amount of that.
1: Okay. Let's say we're going to move on to the ABC. As you know, relations between the ABC and the current federal government are, shall we say, robust. Uh, the government is constantly and publicly complaining about the ABC, and it's and it's um, uh, and giving it a bit of a funding shave in the most recent budget. So I mention that by way of context because you make the suggestion that some of the current funding to the ABC could be freed up and private interests allowed to bid for it um, if they pro- if those interests promise to do uh, use the money in the cause of public interest journalism. So in essence. Are are you suggesting that cutting the ABC might actually be good for public interest journalism? It it seemed to me that the point was really this.
0: Um, If you decided to have a subsidy model, we have a subsidy at the moment for public interest journalism, Mm -hmm. and it's a very large subsidy, and it's called... The, and the funding we provide to the public service
1: broadcasters. Absolutely. Not all of it goes to the Not all of it, it goes, of course. No, but some of it. A lot of it Just goes to
0: Giggle and Hoot or whatever that is. Or yes. All the wiggles. So the Wiggles and all kinds of other yeah. great
1: things. Which I don't think we can claim them as public interest journalism. Well, certainly,
0: by. they certainly are in the public interest, but and whether yes. they're public interest journalism is another is another question. Yes. I've all
1: suspected the Blue Wiggle though. as, yeah. Being, yeah, anyway. as being a journalist, yes, yes that's right. And, mm. and, uh, but
0: if the government decided, as a matter of public policy, that we wanted to increase investment in public interest journalism, if we were worried about the quantum of investment in mm. public interest journalism, then there's a case for at least considering the option of making that funding contestable mm. and and saying what is the best way of doing it maybe it's two S E R. maybe well, maybe it's maybe it obviously it's, goes without saying henry but it goes here so that's yeah
1: but you also make the point and it's a fair point to make i think that due to digital convergence the abc now directly competes with existing publishers yes and, of course, gives its, its journalism away for free when others are trying to make a quit out of it.
0: That's right. And that's certainly a phenomenon that's probably more important in Australia than in the vast majority of, at least the developed countries that, mm. that, that we're familiar with. Um, because? Uh, in part because the role of the ABC seems to be more significant here. Uh, and it has... Expanded its role very considerably, uh, really through its website and through convergence of media. It its positioning has changed. Uh, Twenty years ago, you had the broadcasters on one side of a fence and the print media on the other. Now they're both in the middle in these on on uh, in the online space, and so they compete very directly. Mm. And that has really meant that the ABC, with all of its capabilities, abilities and strength, is a direct competitor to the traditional print media. Uh, now, that, as I said, has, some, has brought some benefits, for instance, in regional areas, mm-hmm. perhaps, where otherwise yeah. the print media might have disappeared and left a vacuum. Um, at least there has been a significant ongoing media presence but it does have a real impact on uh, on the economics of, of the print media. And it's not merely the fact that the ABC um, is available online for free, constantly updated. Uh, it's also that it habituates consumers to the idea that you can get the information you want for free. Yes, indeed. Without all of the hassle of having to have a subscription, having to log in, having to do all of those things. And that makes it more difficult for Mm. the the publishers who want to establish an online presence on a subscription basis Mm. to overcome consumer resistance.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Fair point, I'm sure. Um, And I I have two more questions before we we go. You and I, I think, could talk on that, but we do have somewhere else to be in a little while. Um, Just on that final point, really... So in, in some ways, these arguments boil down to how the news media industry convinces people in one way or another to pay for the journalism, for the, pay for the public interest journalism. Yes. Do you have any magic wand or, more to the point, uh, insights from your study that might uh, be of use to publishers trying to enhance the willingness of people to pay? Because uh, putting aside the impact of the ABC, by the way, which is, I think, probably a large part of it, but putting that to one side, what can journalists, journalism, publishers do to um, encourage people to pay for what they provide?
0: Well, I think what's happening in Australia and everywhere we've looked at is that uh, publishers uh, have moved from... uh, Uh, an extreme reliance on an advertising-funded model to much greater emphasis on subscription revenues. Mm. Uh, And uh, uh, that doesn't mean that they're ignoring advertising. On the contrary, um, advertising revenues are beginning to pick up for at least some of the traditional publishers uh, and they're uh, making much better use of their advertising space than they used to Mm. uh, do. So they're doing that but at the same time they've really shifted to much much more of a, of 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 a subscription model and in uh in doing that um i i think there's really two elements that uh distinguish the successful from the less successful in terms of their adjustment strategies uh so the first uh element is uh the ability to offer unique content. And so what we're seeing is much greater range of differentiation, much less Me Too news, much less of the sort of everyday uninteresting or the the, the material that's available anywhere, mm. right? Mm. Much less of that and much more focus on... on uh, uh, Analysis, investigation, commentary, mm-hmm. packaged in the, intelligent—the value, yeah—packaged in, packaged in intelligent ways, and that's one of the reasons why we're actually moderately optimistic about mm-hmm. public interest journalism, mm-hmm. is because that's part of those unique propositions that that publishers are able to offer. And the second aspect of it, uh, which I think comes back to what has been. Uh, a recurring feature in the history of the media ever since the invention of the newspaper is curation, mm-hmm. curation. Mm-hmm. We're in a world where people are bombarded with information whose quality is uncertain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's overwhelming in just the intensity and continuity of its of its demands. Uh, and so what people will look for in that sort of a world is someone who takes editorial responsibility, and packages it, puts it together in interesting ways and gives them uh, the information they want and not all the rest, and has a quality assurance role, Mm -hmm. and can establish a reputation for that quality assurance role. They have to do that uh, curation in a manner that's consistent with their positioning in the market. And so, one of the things that we're seeing there, as I said, is we're seeing more differentiation, but we're also seeing more positioning mm. so papers staking out more of a discrete identity of a kind mm. uh which can be in 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 terms of their political positioning, can be in terms of the sort of culture they're mm-hmm. they're they're creating, mm. and packaging that together is is really, to my mind, the the way of the future.
1: My final question, um, you do suggest that reforming defamation laws might be one way of of funding public interest journalism in this country. What do you think, what's the easy way of reforming defamation that we can all sleep safer in our beds and get more money in through the front door?
0: Uh, I think it's very important. I mean, public interest journalism is... um, and you would know this better than I because you've been in the hot seat of editing papers, Um, public interest journalism is a risky activity. And it's risky really for two reasons. The first reason is because there are lots of dry wells. Mm. You set out to explore something and you find that there isn't Mm. anything and it's costly getting to that point. And the second reason is that there's legal risk. There's legal risk that you'll have a story but uh, it's a story that Either you can't publish or you do publish, and uh, you uh, uh, find yourself being subject to uh, defamation claims. Uh, Now, in Australia, we had, as you well know, at a state level, a very punitive regime that really discouraged public interest journalism because it just put such a burden uh, on... uh, uh, on the defendant in those proceedings and we had attempts at reforming it and we have made significant reforms uh, in the last 15 years. Uh, Unfortunately what's happened um, and to to the best of my knowledge this is almost uniquely an Australian phenomenon, what has happened is that the courts have interpreted aspects of the new regime in ways that increases legal risk Mm. and uh, one of the clearest of those is that effectively in the online uh, universe uh, we now have no statute of limitations. Mm. Mm. Uh, so you, yeah. you, uh, do it you... You can do it any time. You yep. can do it any time. You can do it 10 years after. So long as what you've said is is there somewhere mm. in the online universe you're running that risk. And so again, coming to your own experience as uh, a person who's been mm. uh, signing off on those risks as an editor of newspapers, um, you would have to think this risk is going to be on my books yeah. forever.
1: Yeah, you have to carry uh, the carry the uh, cost. You get. have
0: to carry the cost. You have to carry that risk. Mm. And I, I I can understand why we have defamation laws. It's a good thing that we have defamation laws. People should be careful. What they claim about other people's behaviour—it's—it's um, uh, it's entirely proper that we require people who are publishing to uh, not be reckless and to ensure that they have a factual basis for mm-hmm. the claims they mm-hmm. make. Yep, but at the same time, we can't just have that as a risk that is hanging over their heads in. Perpetuity, and that's effectively unlimited. And so there are a lot of technical changes that we can make that don't alter the intention or the objective or purpose of our defamation laws, but make them less of a chilling factor mm, in mm. the decision to go ahead and investigate uh, situations that could be of the public interest. The most important point about public interest journalism is this, that public interest journalism makes a huge contribution to the community, not solely because it rights wrongs, but also because it acts as a deterrent Mm. to people who might otherwise commit those wrongs. The fact that it is there. The fact that it is there. Mm. And if we weaken it, if we have laws which make it just too risky for our media to undertake those investigations, then we invite the abuse of power. And if we invite the abuse of power, we erode the quality of our democracy, the quality of our
1: economy in the long run. I'd like to thank you, Henry, for coming in and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you very much. All the best with the, uh, with the report. And uh, whatever happens to it, I'm sure it will be well read. Thank you. You've been listening to The Fourth Estate, a special podcast edition, with an interview with Henry Ogas, the economist and columnist with The Australian, who has written a report about the impact of uh, news aggregators on public interest journalism. My name is Peter Frey, and my wonderful producer is Evie McGuire, and you'll hear from us again very soon. Thank you.